Welcome back to Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Last time out, we told the story of one of the greatest editions of Paris-Nice, when France's Jacques Anquetil and Raymond Polydor divided a nation with their epic duel in 1966. In this episode, we look back at Sean Kelly's second Milan San Remo victory. The Irishman reeled in rival Moreno Argentine on his fearless descent of the Poggio before kicking clear for the final big win of his illustrious career. Stop any cycling fan on the street and ask them to name a good descender, and they might mention the likes of Vincenzo Nibali, Peter Sagan, Alejandro Valverde or Julian Alaphilippe. Cycling hipsters, however, might suggest Matej Mohoric. But for anyone older than a millennial, Sean Kelly's daredevil drop off the Poggio in the 1992 edition of Milan San Remo will forever remain the reference point for all-out descending. In what was one of the most memorable finishes to a monument in the past 30 years, Italy's Moreno Argentine was beaten by a barnstorming Kelly, then 35 and entering the twilight of his career. It was such an iconic moment for Kelly that it's where his autobiography, Hunger, picks up, with him overturning a 15-second deficit on the inform Argentine on the road in to San Remo. What was I thinking as I plummeted down the descent of the Poggio in pursuit of Argentine? Was I really, as they said, a man possessed? Had I abandoned all thoughts for my safety? Did I care whether I ended up toppling over the low wall and shattering through the roof of one of the glass houses below? None of this mattered. I was thinking of winning, nothing else. I was going to give everything to catch Argentine and win the race. If I finish the day lying on my face among the tomato plants and shards of glass, so be it. Kelly continues, Over the years, the story of the 1992 Milan San Remo has developed a life of its own. I've heard it said that my back wheel skidded around every corner and that I bounced off the walls on my way down, leaving scuff marks on the shoulders of my jersey. That wasn't the case. Perhaps people feel the need to embellish the drama. For me, it was more than dramatic enough. It was not as if Kelly's career was grinding to a halt at that point. The Irishman might have been approaching his 36th birthday, but he had won his third Giro di Lombardia just months before and had already notched a couple of early successes in his 16th year as a pro. In fact, Kelly was adamant that he still had what it took to keep competing with the best which was why he fell out with his former PDM team when they refused to prolong his contract at the end of the 1991 season, despite that Lombardia victory. I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder that year with the PDM team, says Kelly. They didn't give me the contract I wanted because they said I wasn't worth it. So, going into the 1992 season with the Festina team, I wanted to prove something. I had already shown some good form in the earlier races, winning the Trofeo Luis Puig at Benidorm, so I was coming good, but Milan San Remo was the big one. It wasn't only his former employees on whom Kelly wanted to turn the tables. His sweeping up of the falling Lombardian leaves was already long forgotten by those dictating public opinion, and Kelly was a proud man. A lot of the cycling press had written me off, Kelly explains. They were saying Kelly had got too old, and that, at this point in his career, he was not capable of a big win anymore. So I had something to prove there. It was a number of things that motivated and pushed me to train hard over the winter. But Kelly had opted to keep his powder dry in Terreno Adriatico just days earlier. As he explains, I felt very good and I said, now, I'm not going to show my cards here. 
I'm just going to keep riding my race without doing anything major. Because otherwise, at San Remo, they'd say, watch Kelly, he's coming into good shape. So, I kept quiet. While Kelly preferred to ride to Renault that month to condition his legs, Argentine went full gas. The then 31-year-old Italian won all of the final three stages and was eyeing a maiden San Remo triumph to go alongside his four Liège-Baston-Liège wins and victories in both the Tour of Flanders and Giro di Lombardia. Sure, the in-form Ariostea rider had never finished higher than fourth at San Remo, but the race was being talked up as his coronation. Add to this another critical ingredient, Kelly's almost salty dislike of Argentine. When asked whether he used to get on with the Italian, there's a long pause before he delivers his answer. No. After another equally long pause, Kelly offers some context. I had never been in good relations with him since the 1987 World Championships in Austria. When we got into the final two laps of the race, he started sitting on my wheel. And Argentine would stay there, effectively marking Kelly out, latching on to his every move, sticking to him like a persistent mosquito. When Kelly's compatriot Stephen Roche forced the decisive break, Kelly preferred to sit back in the chase group rather than drag Argentine back into contention. Roche won the race that day, so there were celebrations in the Irish camp. But for Kelly, it was tinged with regret, for that was as good an opportunity as he would ever get to chase down those elusive rainbow bands. I did think of that when I was on the podio, says Kelly. This guy, how he hurt my final of that World Championships. I think that pushed me that little bit more to try and catch him and beat him. That was something of a sore point with me after that Worlds. After Argentine's Ariastea team shackled all his rivals on the Cipressa, the first of the two famous climbs that make up the Milan-San Remo finale, Frenchman Eric Boyer was first ahead of a large group of riders as the peloton headed towards the base of the Poggio. Boyer's cameo was extinguished after Argentine lived up to the hype and shot off the front, pushing a massive gear in a series of accelerations. Despite not being a natural climber, Argentine had the big engine so celebrated in cycling. He was also renowned for his brute strength. Like Peter Sagan today, he was capable of sustained uphill bursts. A climb such as the Poggio was putty in his pedals, even if he'd never win on a hellish slog like the murderous Mont Ventoux. Italian newspaper La Gazzetta dello Sport reported that Argentine shredded the group with five attacks from the anthology of cycling. He seemed to be moving as easily as the motorbikes in front of him. Such was the rage that he was putting through the pedals. Maurizio Fondriest, the former world champion who would win La Primavera the following year, led the chase on his compatriot as Argentine's Danish teammate Rolf Sorensen did his best to shadow any moves. The one rider who didn't try anything, however, was Kelly. Before the Poggio, I tried to conserve as much energy as possible, he says. Then, on the Poggio, I said, I'm feeling okay. I'll just sit back a little here and not get involved in the racing too much up front in the top 10 riders. I just wanted to try and follow in 10th or 15th position and see how I get on up the Poggio. As I went up, I was feeling better and more confident. Of course, we all saw that Argentine was in excellent shape at Torino Adriatico, where nobody could touch him. This, too, was an Italian race, and he was the outstanding favourite. He attacked a number of times on the Poggio, and there were guys trying to chase him. He did that one, two, three, four times, and I just let the other guys try to catch him. I had to be very clever tactically not to make any unnecessary effort on the climb, because you only have to make a big effort for 200 metres and that puts you in the red, and then you never recover. I had that all pre-planned before the race, and I put it into motion on the Poggio. 
Argentine crested the summit with seven seconds on Fondriest and Sorensen, with Kelly a further few seconds behind. It should have been enough for a maiden victory on the Via Roma, but Argentine had not read Kelly's script. Kelly might admit today that the stories of him touching walls with his elbows and breaking the 100 km per hour barrier are an exaggeration, but that's not to say that his descent of the Poggio was anything short of spectacular. When I got to the top, says Kelly, I decided that the descent was the time to do something, so I just went as hard as I could. The Poggio descent is made up of a series of high-speed straights punctuated by narrow hairpin bends where the wailing of brakes and the screech of rims echoes against the banked walls. While the regularity of the switchbacks keeps a check on speed, any false move can still see riders skid off into those walls or, worse, over the edge and into the greenhouses catching the Ligurian sun. It's not that fast a descent, Kelly explains, because there are a lot of corners and you have to regularly knock off your speed. You don't have these big long straights with huge speeds, but I would say I got up to at least 70 km per hour. You can get to that very quickly. Kelly tried to pass Argentine's teammate Sorensen on the right side on the first corner, but the Dane closed the door and pushed him dangerously close to the wall. That did not perturb Kelly, however, and with the TV images claiming the gap was up to 15 seconds for Argentine, Kelly rode clear of the group after the second corner. Looking closely at the footage now, it might seem more than a little brazen that Kelly and Fondriest are the only two riders out of the group of favourites who wore helmets. Not that a helmet would have made much difference if your crash landing were to be cushioned by a greenhouse. Did that thought bother Kelly? There were a few of the corners where I was probably going on the limit, or maybe a fraction over the limit, because, on two corners at least, there was a bit of noise from the tyres on the sidewalls going round, he says. But you're in the zone. The adrenaline is flowing, but you're just thinking, get round this one, then the next, as quickly as possible. You don't really take a moment to think, what if something goes wrong? Because if something goes wrong, then you hit the corner and you end up in the glass houses. But I was closing on Argentine, so I had to take all the risks possible to catch him. I pushed all the way down the Poggio, and I was getting that little bit closer all the time. Of course, when you look back at the footage, you think it's unbelievable and crazy, but during the race, you're in the zone and thinking about winning Milan-San Remo. And that is exactly what Kelly did. When it came down to a sprint, he wasn't called King Kelly for nothing. But beating Argentine was far from a foregone conclusion. As Peter Cousins says in his book, The Monuments, although Argentine is no mug in a sprint, he is no match for a specialist like Kelly. For Kelly, however, at this stage in the race, victory was far from in the bag. Well, it's Milan San Remo, he says. And when you do the descent full on, like he was doing, and like I was doing, trying to catch him, then anything can happen. He was still a danger, depending on how he was feeling, and that's what it's all about. How much energy you have left in the tank at the end of a big, long, difficult race. And when you do the descent full on, like he was doing, and like I was doing, trying to catch him, then anything can happen. He was still a danger, depending on how he was feeling. And that is what it's all about. How much energy you have left in the tank at the end of a long, difficult race. Speaking to La Repubblica afterwards, Argentine let it slip that he had no idea Kelly was closing in. When I saw the banner for the last kilometre, I was just thinking of having made it, he said. Instead, Kelly popped up behind me. I hadn't seen him. Otherwise, I would have reacted in time. The catch came just beyond the Flamme Rouge, with less than one kilometre remaining. 
But instead of powering past, Kelly made the decision to stay on Argentine's back wheel and force the Italian rider to keep setting the tempo, clearly reveling in turning the tables on the man who had sandbagged him in Valac in the 1987 Worlds. He looked around, says Kelly. He wanted me to take to the front a couple of times, but there was not a chance. I wasn't going to do it. If I had taken to the front with 800 metres to go and he was in my wheel, then he would have got that little bit of recovery time in my slipstream, and that counts for a lot at the end of such a long race. While this was a gamble on Kelly's part, with the chasing pack closing in, the prospect of being caught by the field ramped up the pressure on the man who had seemed destined to solo to glory. I made sure I moved over to the left so he could definitely see the group coming up behind, just to make him panic a bit more and continue on pushing, setting quite a good pace, says Kelly. After another forlorn look over his shoulder, Argentine was forced to take up the sprint as the riders swung round the final bend. Just as a nasty crash behind took out Fondriest and a handful of pursuers, Kelly kicked clear to seal the inevitable, pumping his arms in the air to reveal a huge Festina watch etched across his chest in all its glory. Perfect timing personified. The dark blue of his jersey clashed with his black shorts and their purple and red blotches. Truth be told, it was a truly horrendous colour scheme made all the more apparent by the mushroom-like white domed helmet and accompanying pallor of Kelly's arms. But Kelly didn't care. Six years after his first title there, he had doubled up in San Remo. Cosin says, As the Irishman celebrates what will be the final big win of his career, Argentine appears paralysed by shock. He will never win La Primavera. It didn't take long for the favourite to reel off his excuses, with Argentine claiming that the race motorbikes not only hampered his attacks, but aided Kelly's descent. In the immediate aftermath, he told reporters, On the hill, when I attacked, I was immediately caught up behind the photographer's motorbikes. I had to slow down and then attack all over again. You all saw what happened. With all the motorbikes behind, I couldn't see Kelly. I guess he was also aided by them. This was backed up by Stefano Cilaghi, who rather tenuously claimed that Argentine's repeated attacks in response to being held up by the motorcycles meant he couldn't follow his wheel. These gripes were quickly dismissed by another Italian, Francesco Moser. The winner of the 1984 edition of the race gets straight to the point. He went too slow downhill. Argentine also went with the old chestnut of claiming his rival wasn't the strongest that day, merely one of the cleverest. It's a charge Kelly seems happy to accept today. When you look back, I played it very well, he says. Every time he was shouting, Tira, pull, and I just shook my head, opened my mouth big time, and looked like I was in oxygen debt. He pulled on a bit, then slowed down again, looked round, and gave me the wag with the top of his head for me to come to the front. But, as I said, if I went to the front, he would have been in control. So I stayed put and made him lead out the final 600 metres. I was definitely in the better position, so tactically, I played it well. I played it cool, and it worked out. As for Argentine's claim that Kelly benefited from the slipstream and cover of the motorbikes, the Irishman readily admits that he might have had a point there, too, at least to a degree. I might have had motorcycles for a time, I'm not going to deny it, says Kelly, but back in those days there were always lots of motorcycles alongside the peloton. He, of course, had a lot of traffic following him. That's true. The Poggio is a difficult one. It's already hard to look back, but to look back and not have the vision because of the cars and motorbikes following behind you, yes, he probably had a point in saying that. But I took all the risks I could, and it just worked out for me. Despite everything, Kelly is adamant that he won that day because he played his cards right.
He had a plan, stuck to it, took the risks, measured his efforts and put in the attacks when he needed to. If the inform Argentine was going to win, he was always going to do it with a devastating attack on the Poggio. But that, ultimately, also proved his undoing. As Kelly graciously concludes, One thing I'd say is that he probably made a huge effort attacking on the Poggio, and so he was probably that bit more fatigued and didn't do the greatest descent. When you do the Poggio full gas, there's no time to recover. And if you're in the red going over the top, then it can affect your descending. So, what happened next? Having failed to snatch his best chance to win Milan-San Remo, Argentine never added the race to his Palmares. The Italian continued his career for another two seasons, adding a third Flesh Wallon title to his name and three more Giro stages. But he never rode San Remo again after the heartbreak of 1992. For Kelly, funnily enough, it all went downhill after his Poggio masterclass. The 35-year-old added just two more pro wins to his Palmares and could muster only 39th place when defending his San Remo crown 12 months on. Instead, the Italian Fondriest bounced back from his fall in the 1992 race to win on the Via Roma. An Irishman wouldn't take another monument until Dan Martin's victory in Liège-Baston-Liège in 2013. Perhaps PDM, Kelly's former team, had a point after all. After that win at Milan-San Remo, I found it difficult to motivate myself and continue the training regime that you need to do to be competitive, says Kelly. I seemed to lose it a bit. I hadn't the form that I needed to continue. I wasn't hungry anymore. But if Kelly's career took on a rapid decline before his retirement in 1994, it was not as if the Irishman hadn't sensed the clock winding down. As he explains, I knew going into that Milan-San Remo that my time to win more classics was quickly running out. I knew it was one of the last opportunities I would have to win one of the big monuments, so I had to grab it with both hands tactically and not make any unnecessary mistakes. I had to get everything right. And that's what I did. It went perfectly, and I won my second Milan-San Remo. Cosins, in The Monuments, picks out Kelly's win as going against the grain of what fans usually associate with a standout performance in the sport. Cycling's annals feature endless tales of brilliance on climbs, but on very few occasions does a rider's astounding ability going downhill rate a reference. Kelly's performance on the descent of the Poggio that afternoon is one that does. While the Poggio climb provides the focal point of the first monument of the season, it's the descent that often proves as decisive. It is, however, prone to landslides and the declining condition of the road might force the race organisers to skip the Poggio in future editions of La Primavera. It would be a big disappointment if they didn't do the Poggio, says Kelly. The Cipressa and the famous run into the climb, then the descent, that's the history of Milan-San Remo. If you lose that, it would take away big time from the race and it wouldn't be the normal Milan-San Remo that we've all got used to. Kelly remains hungry for another memorable edition of the race, at least as a spectator. It was that same hunger that defined a career that yielded 160 wins, and the same hunger that was finally sated after serving up what proved to be the last big dish of the Sean Kelly era. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can hear more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, 
or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And when you've done all that, you can join us for our next episode. We're not looking back very far. It's the crazy, windswept 2015 edition of Ghent Webblegan.